Hello, everyone. Um, I want to say out on the outset that my voice um, might fade a little bit as we go on here, <laughs> um, but I'm doing my best. As far as I can tell, in every culture where Christians have a tradition of observing Lent, there's also some tradition of indulgence or celebration in the days before Lent. The most well-known of these traditions, like Mardi Gras and Carnival, are citywide parties, continuing to be enjoyed by people who are maybe only vaguely aware that their origins come from pre-Lenten celebration. In the cities that I've called home, um, the day before Ash Wednesday um, is sometimes called Punchki Day, um, based on the decadent filled donuts that we enjoy along with our Polish neighbors. Though it's been a few years now, MNC had a tradition of gathering to eat breakfast for dinner and race around with pancakes on our heads. And such silly and such wholesome and silly community gatherings are a tradition in a number of Christian cultures. Although many of these traditions are rooted in the very practical need um, to eat up the rich foods that people were going to not eat during Lent, um, there are also many traditions of parties, parades, and other ways of enjoying time together um, before, they, before the somber season ahead. It seems that this tendency to precede a season of fasting with an occasion for joy is mirrored in the common lectionary texts um, that we get for the last Sunday um, before Lent. Um, the Sunday is sometimes called Transfiguration Sunday, um, based on the gospel text that Chris read. Um, it's the, the story of when Peter, James, and John witnessed Jesus transforming and, and having a mountaintop meeting with Elijah and Moses. This is a story that appears in Matthew, Mark, um, and Luke's Gospels. Um, so in theory, we, could hear, we would hear a slightly different version of the story in each of the three lectionary cycles. Um, but in practice, the three versions are really nearly identical. Um, in each story, Jesus, Peter, James, and John go up a mountain. Jesus undergoes a metamorphosis, becoming bright and shiny. Moses and Elijah appear, Peter, in classic Peter fashion, makes the enthusiastic yet fairly silly offer to pitch some tents for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. A cloud rolls in, and a voice identifies Jesus as God's son and bids the disciples to listen to him. Then the clouds clear, Moses and Elijah are gone, and either by Jesus' instruction or their own choice, the disciples don't tell anyone, right away at least. These stories also fall roughly in the same time in their Gospels. In the earlier chapters describing Jesus' ministry, um, there often isn't much said about where the story's going. Um, Jesus is traveling, telling stories. He's teaching and interpreting the law and prophets. He's healing many and performing other, other various miracles as needed. But in all three Gospels, this story falls within a chapter or so of both Peter's confession that he believes Jesus to be the Messiah and Jesus' first prediction of his coming suffering and death. The story is set, the story of the transfiguration is set as it is starting to become clear that Jesus is not just a charismatic miracle worker or an affable teacher, but that Jesus is a person of great significance 
who's on a road that will end in conflict, suffering, and death. Um, now, I don't want to overstate the similarities between the two accounts. There are a few differences. Um, Matthew's Jesus helpfully tells the disciples not to be afraid. Luke shares that Peter, James, and John are tired but succeed in resisting sleep and therefore are awake to see Moses and Elijah, um, which parallels um, the story further on in the gospel when the same disciples fail to stay awake um, as Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of his arrest. As often is the case, Mark's account is a bit more sparse on the descriptive detail, but Mark is the only gospel writer who tells us that Peter offered to build the shelters because he did not know what to say. And it tells us that the disciples were terrified. I think it's worth mentioning this for a couple reasons. First, the text follows telling us what Peter said by telling us that Peter did not know what to say. I find this deeply relatable <laughs> because how many times have I said, said things knowing as I was saying them that it was probably not the right thing to say, but still being unable to stop myself. And even though I might joke about Peter's tendency to bring tremendous energy and conviction, conviction while completely missing the point, I love these glimpses of Peter's irrepressible humanness. Peter didn't earn his place in Jesus's life by being the most wise or prudent or articulate person. He was there because Jesus called him and he followed with every ounce of energy and conviction he could muster on any given day. And I find that deeply comforting. I also love this apparent contradiction um, when what we hear about Peter's thought process here. We learn that Peter is dumbfounded and terrified and that he stated it was good for them to be there and offered to do the needed labor so that they can all stay. Now, I'm sure that this just could be interpreted as a reflection of Peter defaulting to cultural expectations in the face of his bewilderment, speaking respectively to revered leaders and offering hospitality. But I'm not sure that's it. Because in my own life, I've experienced unexpected good things. Overwhelming sense of God's presence, awe at the beauty and power of creation, or even a really good day when I've been having a difficult time. I can relate to being overwhelmed by emotion, having no idea what's going on, but at the same time knowing that the experience is a gift and that I would give almost anything if that moment would never end. It's interesting to think about why Jesus might have chosen to share this experience at this time. These friends have seen Jesus healing the sick and even raising the dead. They've likely either witnessed or heard of Jesus's heard the story of Jesus' baptism when a dove descended and a voice named Jesus God's beloved son. These guys were all in, having given up their ordinary lives to follow Jesus. And at least in Peter's case, at least Peter was already convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. And furthermore, these people would witness his death and resurrection 
These people would see Jesus crucified and buried. And these people, these were people for whom he would cook breakfast a few days later. These were people whom Jesus had nothing to prove. But Jesus chose that they should see him, bright and shining, conversing with Moses and Elijah, and named God's beloved child. If one assumes that Jesus knew what lay ahead, conflict, opposition, arrest, conviction, execution, then I wonder if sharing this experience was a gift to his disciples, um, that a few of these, close, these friends who are closest to him would get a glimpse of where the story ends, on the other side of suffering and death. Their beloved teacher and friend, whole and beautiful, alongside the heroes of faith, with a declaration from on high that he's the one, he is the one they've been waiting for, that they can trust the words that he speaks to him speaks to them. It seems fair to say then that Peter was right. It was good for them to be there. But Jesus knows they can't stay. That they would have to climb down the mountain onto a road that would be unspeakably hard to travel. And the vision that those disciples saw that day the vision, the vision that they saw that day could not just be a secret for Jesus to share with his inner circle. It was a revelation that would need to be shared with the whole community and the whole world. They couldn't stay on the mountain, but they could carry what was revealed to them through the journey ahead. As Jesus and his disciples went down from the mountain and began the journey to the cross, we hear the story as we begin the season, just before we begin the season of Lent. As I suspect that a lot of you have heard me say right now, I am not a fan of overly dramatic metaphors for the season of Lent. This isn't our journey into the wilderness. This isn't our time of trial. These don't seem like apt metaphors for practicing disciplines that we choose while we go through our ordinary lives, knowing that we can stop at any time should those disciplines prove to be impractical, too difficult, or just not what we need this year. And we don't need to make our own wilderness simulation. Life has a way of setting us on journeys through the wilderness without our effort, without our consent, and without the choice to turn back if it's too hard or we just don't see the point. I tend to see Lent as not so much a journey into the wilderness, but a chance to pack for the wilderness journeys that life will undoubtedly, on which life will undoubtedly send us, to let go of the things that distract us and weigh us down, to find the wounds at the root of our pa the pains we struggle with and open ourselves to the healing work of the Spirit, to and to identify the things that we can trust and hold on to, no matter what life might take away, take away from us, those things that we can bring with us when the journey is long and hard and we need to pack light. On this day, even before we begin that work, we're reminded of this story, of this gift that Jesus gave to Peter, James, and John, that no matter where we go, there are gifts that we too carry with us, 
the moments of assurance and certainty, the moments of wonder and awe, the moments that terrify and perplex and unsettle us, but that we treasure nonetheless, the love that will hold us, even if life takes everything else away. That is the truth in which we begin. We can't stand the mountaintop, but we can carry the mountaintop with us as we go. <laughs>